One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, in one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with E.J. Levy, author of the novel The Cape Doctor. It's about the integrity of one's spirit. And it's part of what's so affronting to me about important and powerful as as self-labeling can be. The risk is that we get trapped in forms, in roles, in categories that destroy our humanity. We'll be back with E.J. Levy after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, This show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash First Draft Writers. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. 
I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is E.J. Levy, author of the short story collection Love in Theory, the novel The Cape Doctor, and editor of the anthology Tasting Life Twice, Literary Lesbian Fiction by New American Writers. Levy's work has been featured in the Best American Essays, the New York Times, and the Paris Review, among other publications. Her short story collection won the 2012 Flannery O'Connor Award, and her anthology won a Lambda Literary Award. Her novel, The Cape Doctor, is a fictional account of Margaret Ann Bulkley, who was born in Ireland in 1795 and disguised herself as a man to go to medical school and work as a surgeon. She lived her entire life as a male and was discovered to be female only in death. In Levy's novel, we first meet the protagonist as Margaret, a young poor girl in Ireland who escapes the debts and whims of her unpredictable father and brother by going to London to seek a better life with her prosperous uncle. He dies soon after, and with the support of a generous benefactor, Margaret transforms into Jonathan and becomes a world-class surgeon, eventually working in Cape Town, South Africa. In Cape Town, Jonathan becomes an intimate friend of the Cape Governor, Lord Somerton. The two were later accused of a scandalous homosexual affair. The novel follows Jonathan throughout his life as he questions ambition, love, loyalty, identity, and sacrifice, while achieving prestige and a level of education that would never have been available to a female at the time. We began the discussion with E.J. Levy sharing how she became a storyteller. I think this, the quick, maybe too glib answer is because I came from a family with a lot of secrets. And so I think the sense that there was another story to be told weighed really heavily on me when I was a kid. But I didn't read a lot. I mean, I was very, I did a lot of math and a lot of biology, um, but I couldn't concentrate on reading when I was growing up, I think, because I was kind of watching to make sure my mother would not off herself. And I say that, you know, jokingly, but not. Um, but also because I thought stories were a lie. Often fiction in particular seemed to me a fraud that nobody lived such shapely lives. Um, and it wasn't until I had finished college um, and where I had studied first economics and Latin American studies and then history um, that after I graduated, one of the people in a house I was sharing had the works of Virginia Woolf. And I picked up to the lighthouse and was hooked. And I thought, this is it. You know, it really saved my life um, at a time when I was really despairing to find um, a reason to live and such awakeness. Um, and it was a real lifeline to me. So after college, I, I started to want to write, but it would take me a long time to get up the courage to actually start writing. I don't think a lot of people pick up to the lighthouse who aren't in English class. Yeah, the, the people in the house I was in were all English majors and went on to do really interesting things, become, you know, 
writers for the Atlantic and filmmakers, documentarians and performance artists. I was the really drab, you know, we just needed somebody to fit into the extra room for the summer. Um, but it was good company to be in and finding, discovering will change the trajectory of my life and probably saved my life, honestly. The kind of secrets that you lived with in, in your life that maybe helped you turn to story, how do you think that might have affected the type of stories that you write? Oh, it's so smart. Certainly, it has the fact that my father was, can I say this on the radio, fucking around for the entire time my parents were married you know, with graduate students when they were young married and he was a professor in Queens and my mom was finishing up graduate work in Minnesota. And, um, you know, he was sleeping with his students. He was just really a philanderer, but she didn't learn that until they were in their sixties. So it was um, a heartache for her. Um, and I think for him too you know, um, but in different ways. Um, but what I would say is that the fact that the lies had to do with desire and sex and that it was um, that my mother was exiled to a marriage that was unsatisfactory in terms of the body and that she was brilliant and thwarted in her brilliance by being female, you know, where she thought it would be unfeminine to be as ambitious and brilliant as she was. She would have made a great physician, a great pianist, a great anything, great politician. Um, so all I think um, despite the long winding answer, I would say that the kind of stories I tell are very much centered on desire as an engine of identity whether the desire is for another body as a bodied being or for ideas, that it saved my life to come out as a lesbian. And I think in some ways it destroyed my, my mother's life or certainly damaged it to be um, so cut off from the pleasures of the body for decades of her life as a passionate, brilliant person. Yeah, that's a lot to hold because it sounds like if your mom didn't know that until her 60s, then you you might have sensed it, but you probably didn't know it either when you were growing up. No, we had no idea. I thought these that the forms that they were adhering to were so hollow, but I couldn't figure out if there was anything beyond that hollowness. And so I think in some ways it makes sense that a writer like Wolf would be a, a tether back to the body because she's so cerebral um, and maps that so sensually, right? That it was a way, it was a language I could understand to make my way back to the body. Um, and so reading, you know, Wolf and Lord and Adrian Rich and Auden and Isherwood and Baldwin, you know, um, at the same time that I was falling, you know, falling in love with women and coming out really partly gave me something I felt like was worth talking about, you know, other than my boring, you know, Minnesota childhood. And the world just turned in, you know, technicolor. So I wanted to write about it. So how did you find the story of the Cape Doctor, which is based on a real person who went by the name James Miranda Barry? And your um, character is Jonathan Miranda Perry. And basically the premise is this young woman named Margaret in the 1800s in England. She wanted to become a doctor. She, she wanted more. She wanted a life of the mind and she couldn't have it. And she disguised herself as a man and excelled, went through medical school, became a very successful doctor. And that's, that's in your story and that's in real life. How did you alight on this and realize that you had to tell the story? So almost 10 years ago, my now partner, my now um, husband, and I were in Cape Town. I went with him 
to um, a, a space conference. Basically, he was a NASA guy. So I went with, and on the plane from Washington, D.C., where we lived then, um, uh, I read a single line in a guidebook about this amazing, brilliant, irascible dandy of an Irish army surgeon who in the 1810s and 1820s had transformed medicine in Cape Town and was also caught in a sodomy scandal and performed the first successful cesarean section known in Africa at the time, um, was so famously brilliant that Napoleon himself called for Dr. Barry from his deathbed and rose to the level of inspector general of military hospitals, which is, I guess, you know, this enormously lofty rank of the equivalent, I understand, of a brigadier general, only to be discovered in 1865 to have been, according to the layer out, a perfect female whose body showed evidence of having carried a child. And I was utterly captivated. Um, and it was kind of hard to say why, um, but um, I mean, partly it was identification. You know, I mean, I'd spent a period of time um, in my 30s where I was routinely mistaken for a man when I lived in New York. But when we arrived in Cape Town and my partners at this conference, so I'm going around, you know, touring a little bit and everywhere I went, I would think, what would Barry have thought of this? What would what did Barry think of the castle where the soldiers were housed or the prison or the, you know, Table Mountain or, you know, the um, what would have been more of a frontier? Um, what did he think of, of all of these places? And I had, you know, I took down notes, but I really felt like I had a voice in my head saying, commenting on things and felt a little haunted. And when I got home, I ordered a biography and started to read about Barry. But very quickly, the book began to take shape and in particular took shape with opening lines that I'd had in my head in wandering around Cape Town which was, she died so I might live. Um, and I later learned that Mark Twain, when he'd been touring the world, had seen a painting, a portrait of Barry, and had felt kind of compelled to write of the doctor, just a very short sketch. Um, and Dickens had also written a very short story um, uh, after hearing of, of Barry but I didn't think anybody had really written a terrific novel. And I felt like I, I wanted to do that for many reasons. So then once you decided you wanted to do it and you had this biography, how much did you feel like you had to research before you started writing? It's a great question. I started writing because I had the voice in my head telling me the story even before I had the biography. Um, or a biography. There are a couple of really good ones, too. So I began writing um, in kind of just really a, an, a, an entranced state. It really did feel like listening more than composing. And then I found myself going back and forth between a wonderful biography um, by Rachel Holmes and, um, and my own pages. Um, and then... Uh, and then between a whole series of secondary sources, uh, I'd read a whole biography of Simone Bolivar for just like a line that it might inspire um, for the characterization of Bolivar. Um, I went to archives. Um, I looked at a lot of images online. So, um, so it was a kind of dialogic process, you know, um, that went back and forth between the two. But I knew that if I, if I researched, as Hilary Mantel said she does, heavily upfront, that I'd be too intimidated to write. So I listened to the voice in my head and worked back and forth from first and you know, primary and secondary sources and, and composition. Yeah, that experience is so interesting to me because the research is fun, <laughs> you know, like learning is really fun, but it's such a different part of your brain. And as you said, you heard her voice. That's like more a, a, 
a trance state, this magic state. And so I'm wondering if it was ever like a push pull for you where maybe you've been researching all day and you can't get that voice in your head or, or just how did you mitigate these two sides? And maybe I'm wrong about that. No, it's a great, it's a great question. And because we're, we have the, you know, we're talking with the zoom, even though the, the zoom part won't show up, but I have like these thick notebooks and I would take all of these notes, um, 19th century, obstetrical atlases that Barry probably would have seen. I, I wouldn't know why certain passages would really call to me. Same thing reading the letters of colonial surgeons, colonial doctors. But I would write them down and just treat them almost like tea leaves. And when I got home, back to my desk, then I could look at them and see what is here and what was it that was speaking to me. Um, and then start composing. And a scene would often come from a single detail, a single object, or a single line. Um, but I had to trust in the seed's ability to unfold in the imagination. So I was thinking maybe that you could read a little bit. Yeah. I had chosen um, something to, just to get into the voice and a little bit of of Jonathan's kind of way in the world and the choices that that Margaret made. Thank you for choosing that section. I will be dead less than a month when the debates will begin over my body, partisans taking sides as if I were a bill in Parliament, a horse on which to wager. Dr. Bradford, with whom I worked in the West Indies, will write in the Medical Times and Gazette to gallantly insist that I was a man through and through if, quote, devoid of all the outward signs of manly virility, unquote. While the Manchester Guardian will assert with equal certitude that I was a woman all along. There are those who will claim erroneously that my body bore evidence of multiple children. Others that it was marked with a cesarean scar. Still others that I had no sex at all, like an angel, or rather, that I was in possession of both, a colossus straddling worlds. I suppose, in a way, I was. There are those who insist I was intersex hermaphrodite. They claim to have studied my case, speaking of me as if I were a patient to be cured, declaring with proprietary authority that I was, quote, an imperfectly developed man, unquote, a man in a female body. How else to explain my success? They debate my corpse as if it were a question, a riddle. Does it matter? Why can't we get over the body, give it a rest? We are measured by our works in the world for better or for worse. The honor we do outlasts and outlives us, weighs in the scales of time far more heavily than do our bones. So why weight the body so? What matter if I were a woman or a man? Rather ask, what did I do? Rather ask what I did with my time. Ask only, did I reach? Did I go beyond what was easily within my grasp? Did I excel, triumph, amaze? Did I live up to my imagining? Is there any other measure? The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. And so the structure of the book 
is that you're going about and you see her life than his life. And, but every once in a while you have these reflective moments. And I, I wanted you to read this reflective moment because it sort of gets to like these really philosophical questions that the book is trying to tell or investigate. It's not necessarily like it, there's an answer. But I wanted to ask you like a little bit about, well, first of all, do you remember writing this passage? I do. I do. Um, and it's really for me at the core of wanting to write this book that I'm delighted that 150, 156 years after Barry died, after Margaret Bulkley died, that we are still so invested in and interested in that life. Um, but I'm, I, in doing the research, I was really dismayed by the extent to which, um, Barry has become a kind of object of, um, debate and object of study. And I wanted to, to return the subjectivity and maybe complicate any easy answers. I think one of the reasons that, that Margaret's life James's life speaks to us now is because it defies the categories that we are so insistent about shoving one another into and ourselves, you know. So this passage is really at the heart of it for me. The stories that were told about the debates that began in 1865 when Dr. James Randaberry died and um, was found to be a perfect female. Um, have continued all this time. And I think that in that, it's um, diminishing of that life. And the life is so much more interesting. I mean, what a marvel to be able to, to transform yourself, really, like this figure out of Ovid. Um, and how tragic that it was necessary. That it's worth noting that the year that, that Dr. James Berry died, 1865, was the first year that a woman was allowed, was licensed to practice medicine in the United Kingdom. Um, that was, of course, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson. But, you know, if Margaret hadn't taken on the, the guise of James, that education, that life would have been foregone. Um, and, you know, obviously, from your earlier question, I'm somebody who, you know, who saw this happen to a brilliant mother. So I suppose in some ways this is like, you know, uh, but if she had only been able to slip the noose of those expectations um, uh, that attend brilliance in a female body. And also just the amount of emotional energy it must have taken to keep that secret. Like not just yeah. physical because she had to like bound her breasts every day and keep her hair cut and hide like when she got her period. But just the emotional toll must have just been so draining. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I also know from my experience, though, having come out and, you know, as being, you know, a little lesbian Avenger in New York in the 1990s and, you know, um, feeling so wonderfully full of myself. And I had really short hair and I thought I looked like Katie Lang. I realized now looking at ID cards that I looked in fact like Harry Potter. I had these big round glasses and short, short hair. But to just be able to be unapologetically in my body, I think now that's what people saw when they would say, sir, oh, I'm so sorry. And they didn't need to apologize. I was delighted that I'd slipped the noose, um, that I was unfixed that way but it was such a freedom and and part of what went with that was a marked change in how men and women both you know cis or queer whatever responded to me and I had many people say oh you are you know you're so brilliant you know we we expect great things of you and it's nobody was saying that to me when they were reading me as female so just the the wind at your back that attends slipping the noose of those gender expectations, being read as male in a, in a, in a, such a sexist, misogynist culture was really just joy. So I also wanted to explore that. 
Yeah, and I think it's interesting because if this was, I mean, a lot of things would have to be different because women can go to medical school, thank goodness. But if this were today and you envisioned that same person, Margaret, but she couldn't have gone to medical school, she could have gone through a whole reassignment and become a true male. But I don't think, at least my read from the book, was it wasn't that she identified with a male. She identified with whatever path would allow her to be a doctor. I think that's true. I think it's open for debate. And I don't want to claim that there's only one way to see it, because the fact is we have voluminous evidence of what James Berry wrote um, about medical practice, professional life, almost nothing of a personal nature. But a book that I didn't get to consult when I was writing was a 2016 biography uh, that came out, I think, first in England called Dr. James Berry, A Woman Ahead of Her Time by Michael Deprees and Jeremy Dronfield. And they really got so much, pulled together so much research um, that hadn't been known before. And one of the things they found was that um, Margaret late in life, James late in life, had a trunk that was papered inside with women's um, images of women's clothing cut out and, and pasted in. So they read this as a sign that James longed to return or Margaret longed to return to life as a woman. I think it's amb more ambiguous than that. Um, but they also um, contend that Margaret expected to be able to return to um, life as Margaret after medical school had she only been able to, because she expected to be able to travel with Miranda to Venezuela, where such disguise would not be necessary. They, you know, they'd take who they could get as a, as a doctor. Um, but the fact is we don't know. Um, and I guess I think that um, we don't have terrific language maybe, or we don't have as many narratives of what it's like to just feel like a human, right? And not feel like, you know, male or female. And so partly I wanted to write a book that navigates some of that, charts some of that. But yeah, my sense is that Margaret would, would not have um, uh, taken on the guise of James had society not made that necessary. And she was very conscious of in one of the few letters we have from Margaret before she became James was to her brother saying, if I weren't a girl, I'd, I'd be a soldier. So she was really conscious of the constraints placed on her by her sex in that culture. The passage that you just read had a lot of questions in it, you know, about like, did I go beyond what was easily within my grasp? Did I excel? Did I live up to my imaginings? Um, and you talk about a little bit about this debate about gender. And I'm wondering if, if your experience of writing this book, if you changed anything that you thought about gender or, or how it maybe changed you. It's mm, a wonderful question. I think it was a chance to say a lot of things that have seemed true to me about the miscategorization, the mismeasurement of our humanity by categories that may be meaningful, but may also be constricting. So I don't think it changed in any way how I see sex or gender, but I think it was for me a chance to think about and write about in part this life from, of Margaret and James from the end of the 18th century into the you know, late 19th century, but also a chance to think about how this is, what it is to live in a sexed and gendered body now. And, um, and that was wonderful because I really haven't had a chance to think about the meaning of being read as male 
for a good portion of my adult life. And when I think what I was actually being read as was human, was as someone to reckon with, who was no longer performing the apologetic approval seeking that is drummed into girls and women in this culture, in my experience. Sounds so liberating. It was really great. It has been great. It's weird now to be read as like a cishet mom when I'm not that, you know, like, but that's fine. It's fine. I'm delighted. So over the course of of writing, Jonathan, you just mentioned that had she gone with Miranda to Venezuela, maybe she could have been a back to her true gender and served as, as a doctor there. So Miranda was someone, General Miranda was someone in the book who was really her first champion. He was this great character in the book. I could almost see it visually that the book, until she met him, was like black and white. And then she met him and it was like technicolor because of what it did for her life, what it did for like the energy of the book. I mean, not that it was bad, but you were just reflecting her life. And then all of a sudden she met this person and it just took one person to really change her life. So I just wanted to ask you about this character and writing this character. Oh, it's such a beautiful and insightful comment. I would say not in terms of writing Miranda, who was world-changing, you know, who was really a, you know, a big mocker. He's really, and very charismatic and um, uh, somebody who really enjoyed the pleasures of the world. But I would say that in terms of that light going on when you feel seen was certainly my own experience that after I had finished college, meeting a few friends, you know, women with whom I was, you know, half in love were fully in love, but they were straight, so that wasn't going anywhere, but, um, but by whom I felt seen. And it changed everything, as I think love does. Um, and I think, you know, as, as Martin Buber says, you know, it went from being a kind of I-it relationship with the world to an I-thou, that there's when you feel truly seen, your relationship to everything changes, to yourself, to others, because it's suddenly a conversation with the world. So I think that informs the portrait of Miranda. But, you know, I read a lot about these characters, these people, and then had to select what to, what to keep. And so they probably resemble a number of mentors and, and friends. Um, and some, to some extent, you know, my mother with her elaborating gaze. And can we just say that General Miranda, he was a real person. He, he, he was, was um, he was from Venezuela. He is considered um, and called the, um, the precursor in Latin America for uh, being the forerunner of Simón Bolívar, um, the, the champion of struggles for national independence in, throughout Spanish-speaking Latin America. And so in the early part of the 19th century, just as in the latter part of the 18th, you know, where America and France had been declaring their independence in different ways, having these revolutionary movements, Francisco de Miranda was in close touch with many of the kind of founders of the American experiment, American democracy, and um, was instrumental in liberating Venezuela and in inspiring successive revolutionary movements. But he was ultimately betrayed by Bolivar and died in jail in Spain. But he had a fantastic library in London and um, where he was based. And that is one of the places where Margaret was educated. Um, and certainly Miranda, among others, worked hard to make possible an education for her. And possibly it was as an experiment, you know, would, would a girl of, of great promise be able to, to really achieve if she were given the chances of a boy? Um, but we don't know. But he was a remarkable figure and had love affairs with, you know, many of the prominent women of the time and, you know, um, would have been a, a great dinner companion. Yeah, and I mean, liberating countries 
is like, it's almost like we as humans are our own country and he helped her liberate the country of her, of her humanity in a way. No, you're brilliant. Yeah. Yep. Love her. So as, as the story goes on and Jonathan passes medical school, ends up moving to South Africa and ends up creating a, a very tight bond with Lord Charles Somerton, who is um, posted there. He becomes his personal physician, but there's also great love between them. And Lord Somerton knows Jonathan is is really Margaret. And there's, at least in your book, there's an affair between them and great love. And I just wanted to ask you about writing that. What I would say is this, that um, the part of the pleasure of writing historical fiction is having so many rich facts to work from, but also so many gaps. And we know that James arrives in late in 1816 in the Cape Colony and that he saves the life of the governor's daughter and becomes an intimate of the family. And we know that eight years later, the governor and the doctor are accused of a sodomy scandal. But the, what happened intimately between them in those eight years is unknown in, in, to a large extent. And so that's a, a delight for a fiction writer, of course, because you've got clues to work from, but nothing definitive. And um, so imagining into the gaps, given, you know, what I'd read in biographies of, of, of the actual Lord Somerset, Lord Somerton, my character, and the biographies of Barry, as well as archives, it was just a pleasure to kind of write into the silence. Probably the part, in addition to the part you, you read earlier, that was the most captivating for me was what was what happened is that through this affair, um, Margaret becomes pregnant and she leaves um, as Jonathan. She leaves. But when she she leaves, she goes away. She tells Lord Somerton she's going to help. I don't know if it was the lepers or going to help um, some native people and she'd be back. Well, she was pregnant. He doesn't know. She births a baby and doesn't end up being able to keep this child. And when she's coming back and they have a moment where she tells him that they have this child and he's so mad at her. And she kind of has this inner monologue about, well, why? Like, that was the point when she found out she was pregnant. She loved him. She would be like he had money. Like, that was a point where she could have given this all up. And she didn't. And so she's really musing about what was it, you know, like, was it ego? Was it this intellectual pursuit? And to me, that was like the whole kernel. I mean, it's similar to your questions in the beginning, but they were kind of deeper because it was a a reason, a more of a forced reason why she had to. It wasn't just musing on her death. So I just it was such a powerful part of the book. And I, I just wanted to ask you about that part. In truth, the evidence is that Margaret was pregnant. It seems to me part of the Rorschach of the past that in looking back, we see ourselves, right? That we're not seeing the past truly, accurately, but seeing our our own faces in the mirror. So I've been struck that when straight men write about Dr. Barry Margaret Bulkley having been pregnant, they have speculated that it was rape. Um, or at another point, um, it was speculated that, despite the evidence to the contrary, that Barry was not a very good doctor, but had just signed up for the army because um, Margaret was lovelorn and followed her beloved into the army. So the kind of the image of the abject or the victim 
um, was something I was conscious of wanting to write against. It didn't seem true to the character, to me, to the evidence we have of the fierce person as James Berry and Margaret Bulkley was. Um, so when it came to this crucial question of um, pregnancy and what you do about it, um, it seemed to me that love would not be enough to give everything up for. To me, it's not clear if that felt like the right calculation or not. You know, toward the end of the book, Jonathan Perry, the doctor, envies a friend, their marriage and their, their family and wonders, you know, if there's anything more important than that. And, you know, I, I, I wrote that partly because I think that it's worth a question. It's unanswerable. On one hand, I think this was probably the great sacrifice of their life, of Margaret and, J and Jonathan's life. On the other hand, we're talking about them now precisely because that sacrifice was made because they became a great surgeon, a great force for medical advancement and dedicated everything to it. In this paragraph, you know, it was not my good name, my reputation that I sacrificed a child, not for vanity or pride or professional ambition, not even for fear of what Lord Somerton might do if presented with a son he hadn't known he sired. And then you go on to say that basically that if she traded Jonathan Miranda's Perry for Margaret Brackley, that the, to do so would not have been a revelation. It would have been a, it would have been a murder, a suicide. I kind of read it as it's more than every sum of its parts. Thank you. I agree. I guess I feel like it is that it's not about a work-life balance. It's about the integrity of one's spirit. And it's part of what's so affronting to me about important and powerful as, as self-labeling can be. I, I think the risk is that we, um, we get trapped in forms, in roles, in categories that destroy our humanity. And I feel like it's my hope that the character of Jonathan Perry, of Margaret Brackley, um, challenge those, um, those terms a little bit. That it's not without cost, but the other choice is impossible to give up the pith of one's life, the deepest self, the one that, to use your beautiful imagery from earlier, the, the landscape that Miranda, um, that the general helped, helped Margaret claim, helped Margaret take as her own. You know, that's self. I don't think it's worth living without that. Can you read a passage from an, an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Love to. And there are so many writers who've influenced me and whom I love um, among them. Virginia Woolf and James Baldwin and Leslie Marmon Silko and Louise Erdrich and um, Audre Lorde and John Cheever and Auden. Um, but I chose above all of those, the one who saved my life and convinced me that um, uh, fiction was worth reading and worth writing. So I'm going to read just two brief excerpts from Virginia Woolf's The Waves. Um, that end up being about a paragraph. Why look, said Neville, at the clock ticking on the mantelpiece. Time passes, yes, and we grow old. But to sit with you, alone with you, here in London, in this fire-lit room, you there, I here, is all. The world ransacked to its uttermost ends and all its heights stripped and gathered of their flowers holds no more. And then the very end of that chapter, but if one day you do not come after breakfast, if one day I see you in some looking glass, perhaps looking after another, 
If the telephone buzzes and buzzes in your empty room, I shall then, after unspeakable anguish, I shall then, for there is no end to the folly of the human heart, seek another, find another, you. Meanwhile, let us abolish the ticking of time's clock with one blow. Come closer. She's a genius. Do you want to share any more about why you chose that? The Waves from Which That Comes is one of my very favorite books. It follows characters, each of them in a kind of first-person soliloquy, their voices braided from childhood to death. And it seems to me as close as any work I know to life as it is lived. Part of the reason to choose first person for this novel was to get to that song of the self that is that first person story we're always telling in our head. As Wolf does brilliantly for her chorus of characters. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, I have two brief passages, very brief. Um, And one is an example of what we were talking about before, that part of the discipline for me of learning to write this first novel was learning to trust the story as it seemed to offer itself. So the first voice that I heard in my head when I was in Cape Town that I noted down were the lines, she died so I might live, though it would be more accurate to say I killed her without the slightest pang of conscience, my sister, or so I think of her now, Margaret, I owe her my life. Not a day goes by that I don't think of it, of her as not a day goes by when I don't think of him. And I tried so many different combinations to write a different opening Um, and they all failed. And ultimately I came back to the pages as I originally wrote them for the first three chapters with very little alteration. My agent asked for no changes save for one in the opening In that opening paragraph, she said, I'll send it out, but cut, though it would be more accurate to say I killed her without the slightest pang of conscience, my sister, or so I think her now. She just thought, you know, no, that's just creating a kind of murder mystery that the book is not about. So that slight revision, she died so I might live, Margaret, I owe her my life, not a day goes by that I don't think of her, of it, of her, as not a day goes by when I don't think of him. Um, is the voice I originally heard, and I'm glad I went back to it. So I guess I say that because I hope it's instructive that we we talk a lot about the value of revision, but I think sometimes there's value in trusting um, trusting the the story as it arrives. At the same time, I was finding it hard to end the book, and the epilogue that I originally wrote was third person and began Dr. James Miranda Berry lived for another 30 years after Lord Charles Somerton's death, exercising that great gift the living too often overlook the power to change things. Berry found a cure for syphilis, et cetera, et cetera. And I knew it was wrong, but I couldn't figure out why it was wrong. And I knew it had to end on the right, with the feet firmly planted, you know, landing. And it wasn't until really late that I figured out that it just needed a point of view change. And so the ultimate epilogue is first person as the book is. And that is, I know how the story ends now, mine, ours, our child's, though this last remains too painful to relate. Some things are unspeakable, like the forced separation of a parent and child. I will live another 30 years after Lord Charles Somerton's death, exercising that great gift that the living too often overlook, the power to change things. I will find a cure for syphilis, etc. But by changing it from third 
to first, I stayed true to the project, to the aim of the book, which was to defy the objectification of this figure in history. And it, it created other challenges, though, which is how can the dead be telling this story posthumously? So that then I had other things I had to wrestle with in the epilogue. Um, and when I finally figured out um, how to address that, I knew I had the book. Where do you write? Anywhere I can, which... Um, has meant since the pandemic, you know, in this last year and a half, in the front seat of my car, in bed at night after our seven-year-old is in bed, um, on my iPhone, you know, taking little notes. Um, Airports are great. You know, I've been in one twice in the last year and a half, but really wherever I can get the solitude. So I have, a, I, I have, in theory, an office at home now, which is a great luxury, and I'm delighted. Um, but it's a mess. So I'm really writing mostly in those other hidden away spots where no one can find me. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I have back to the seven-year-old. So there is a constant tidal pull away from the writing. So we walk, we hike, we bike ride, um, we garden, we um, we do crafts. Um, in, in the before times, I would go to art galleries, I'd read, um, see friends. Um, now it's a little more cloistral, but um, the same principle. But I miss going, I desperately miss going to museums and concerts. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Maureen Stanton who is the rightful inheritor of David Foster Wallace's mantle, though too few people know that. She's a brilliant nonfiction writer. And uh, we joke that, that she is the helpline. Um, so so uh, she is the, 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 my most trusted reader. How have you dealt with rejection? Glibly, I would say poorly, but in truth, Maureen, um, is the one who taught me that uh, rejection is just on the way to getting an acceptance for a piece, um, so that it's a numbers game. As in, you know, I was an environmental um, activist for years and did fundraising as one does, and um, and learned there too that it's always just getting you closer to yes, all those no's. Um, but I would also say that. Um, I've hedged my bets, and I don't recommend it. I mean, I've tended to wait until I felt pretty sure something um, would work, um, rather than risking sending it out um, in a rougher state. And that's part of why I'm, you know, a debut novelist in my 50s. You know, so I, I think take the risks. You know, there's no right or wrong. Just make the, make the things that matter and send them into the world and trust that they'll find their home and trust that you can make it better, as Maureen says. What is your favorite word? I wanted to say plagioclase, which is a cleaving fracture in rock. And it's my understanding that it's part of what gives certain rocks their sparkle. But I think um, I'm no geologist, so um, maybe a, a, a more apt word is cleave. Um, because I, I love that it means both, um, that it's a contronym that means it's opposite, right? So it is both a break and it is, um, the, the connection, the, um, holding fast to something. And I guess in these fractious times, um, I take comfort in in the cleaving fracture and the possibility that what feels like breakage could be, in fact, coming together as unity. Thank you so much for your time and for, for being here for this interview. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It has been such a joy, truly. If you like today's show with E.J. Levy, author of The Cape Doctor, check out my interview with P. Carl, author of the nonfiction book Becoming a Man. We talked about the joy he felt in his own masculinity, 
toxic masculinity and his story of transition from female to male. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 320 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Evie Wilde, Susan Orlean, Charlotte Wood, Peter Ho-Davies, and Jean Hanf Korolitz. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.